Good morning. <laughs> I know that level of enthusiasm over there. Um, all right, our scripture lesson today comes from the book of 2 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 1, verse 12, and going through the second chapter, verse 1. Indeed, this is our boast, the testimony of our conscience. We have behaved in the world with frankness and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and all the more toward you. For we write no you nothing other than what you can read and also understand. I hope you will understand until the end, as you have already understood us in part, that on the day of the Lord Jesus, we are your boast, even as you are our boast. Since I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a double favor. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to ordinary human standards, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For in him every one of God's promises is a yes. For this reason it is through him that we say amen to the glory of God. But it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us by putting his seal on us and giving us his spirit in our hearts as a first installment. But I call on God as witness against me. It was to spare you that I did not come again to Corinth. I do not mean to imply that we lord it over you in faith. Rather, we are workers for you, for your joy, because you stand firm in the faith. So I made up my mind not to make you another painful visit. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. It is an honor that so many of you wanted me to speak before you today. Um, it is really touching. Um, if you don't know me, that's very much fine. <laughs> my name is Lauren, um, and my, myself and my husband, Eric, um, have been attending here for the last year, um, almost exactly to the Sunday we figured out this morning. Um, and we have been attending here while I was serving as a chaplain resident over at Duke Raleigh Hospital. Um, I kept really well under wraps um, for about six months that I myself am a United Methodist minister. Um, something Sarah knew from the first moment I walked through the door since she knew me from seminary and I, I took communion from her and I was like, hi. And she, she, kept it, she kept it a secret because this is a year that my husband and I have spent being fed by you and by God in this community um, while we were between churches ourselves. Um, but the time has come, um, the bishop has called me, um, and I will be taking a church in Northern Virginia. Um, today, like Nicole, um, I leave to serve elsewhere. As we turn to the scripture today, 
Let me first say, I did choose this scripture. I am responsible for it. Um, it was not in the lectionary text, those pre-described texts for each week. Um, because after reading through the lectionary text and having a conversation with Sarah, we decided the lectionary texts were strangely dense and odd excerpts of text that didn't make sense without a larger context. Um, so I, we had all those concerns, and so I went off to find my own text and still landed on this one. Um, so the irony is not lost on me. Um, but hopefully with a little context about Paul's adventures, we can make sense of this passage together. The writer of our scripture today is the Apostle Paul, who writes, as a lot of you know, a lot of the letters of the New Testament. Pastor Sarah has stood in this pulpit before and um, told us that she's not a big fan of preaching Paul, and I tend to agree. Again, I still chose him. Um, he has a lot of difficult things to say to us as a church. Um, he also is not the best speaker or writer, which he himself says that's not, I'm not saying anything, he wouldn't. Um, but sometimes his writing is hard to decipher since he isn't that organized. Um, he generally speaks on abstract concepts, sin, unity, faith. He doesn't tell stories that we can picture ourselves in like the gospel or the Old Testament. Plus, if I'm being honest, I don't think Paul always says things with the most kindness. And that's hard for me as a preacher. In short, like all of the other prophets, leaders, and teachers of the Bible, save Jesus, and like all of us today, Paul is flawed. Yet this scripture gives me compassion for Paul. And it reminds me that despite how much of the Bible he is responsible for authoring and how many churches he planted and how much we are indebted to him as a community today, Paul is still just a human. He struggled to be in relationship with others through the grace offered by the Holy Spirit. And as I thought about what it means to be in community, because that's what I've been reflecting on at this time, to what it has meant to be in community with you all, what it will mean to begin in a new community. The struggle Paul writes about in the scripture brings me hope. Paul talks a lot here about conflict, and he alludes to painful interactions, and I just want to say now, especially to my dear friends and community group, this has not been my experience of you all. We have had a very positive experience. We have been fed and nurtured during our time here. Rather, as we read this scripture, it is my experience that like Paul, being in community is sacred work. And it is only made possible by the anointing of the Holy Spirit on our lives individually and communally. So let's get into it. Paul is the founder of the church in Corinth. Corinth is a wealthy area. It, it has a lot of diversity, Romans, Greeks, Jews. It is also the major seat of the imperial cult of the day, which means it's, it's the place where people go to worship the emperor of Rome. Paul spends a lot of his time in Corinth, including a year and a half where he lives there with two tent makers named Priscilla and Aquila. Much of the church in Corinth is well-to-do and educated. So they have an important hand in raising funds for Paul to send him to plant other churches, um, to send money back to the church in Jerusalem, which historically struggles with poverty. In short, the church in Corinth is 
very different than Paul is himself. In his former life as a religious leader, maybe Paul would have fit in better with the crowd, but since his conversion to Christianity, he has rejected a stable salary, he travels from town to town, he relies on the goodwill of other Christians to put him up, and he does a little bit of trade work along the way to pay, pay his own part. Um, but in short, Paul is functionally homeless. On top of all of this, though he's a religious leader by his own admission, he is not well-spoken. So he isn't that impressive to the church in Corinth. When he comes to teach and preach, when he writes letters, they look at him and they go, eh, I've heard better. He isn't the kind of preacher you invite your friends to come see. Oh, you just have to come listen to my preacher. She's so good. That's not Paul. So after a while, the church in Corinth becomes embarrassed of Paul. Despite the fact that he is their founder, they reject his leadership and they begin to seek out more glamorous teachers and leaders, even though those teachers were straying from the truth. Through letters and a visit, Paul confronts them about their unfaithfulness to him, which is much more importantly unfaithfulness to Christ, since they are following teachers taking them further away from Jesus instead of closer to him. After this confrontation, there is reconciliation. So Paul begins this letter to the Corinthians by reaffirming that he forgives them and he wants only open communication moving forward. However, despite the positive outcome, Paul is also very candid that the process of moving through that conflict was not enjoyable. This is what he refers to as the painful visit. Paul makes it clear that while they got through the conflict, and that was holy, sacred work, he was hurt by them, and he hurt them. They are wildly different, and feelings got hurt. And this is where I start to realize maybe Paul is human. Paul's original plan, you see, was to visit the church in Corinth at the beginning of a long string of visits to churches, and then come back to them on his final stop before he goes to Jerusalem. By making wealthy Corinth his first and last stop, there is some assurance that should Paul come up short financially in his travels, Corinth could help raise the funds needed to keep him going and to bring money to Jerusalem. In fact, later in this letter, Paul encourages them, even though I'm not coming, still please give me your money. For the Corinthians, it is prestigious that they can provide for Paul and for the rest of the church. It's a status symbol that they're proud of. But after this initial and painful visit, Paul decides it's better for everybody if he just skips out on the follow-up visit. There isn't anything more to go through. They've put the conflict to bed. And also, Paul does not want to come back and dig up old wounds. He doesn't see anything productive about going back. So he makes a mature decision to change plans and spare himself and others pain. My compassion for Paul grows. Yet some people perceive this as a slight, a lowering of their status. If Paul's not coming in person to collect the money, right, why should we give it to him? They think Paul no longer recognizes or respects their work and their faith. And in this letter, he assures them that, in fact, he does respect their faith. He goes so far as to write, you will come to understand fully that you can boast in us just as we will boast in you on the day of Lord Jesus. So that brings us up to speed on the circumstances of the writing of the letter and the relationship work that Paul is doing. And honestly, y'all, this relationship work in and of itself is something that we can learn from. 
When we are in community, there is conflict, right? There just is. Conflict can arise from cultural differences, from personality differences, and more seriously, like it did in Corinth, from struggles within the journey of faith as we each wrestle with our own imperfections as we become more Christ-like. We are going to sin against one another. And I'm not even necessarily talking about something that's intentionally malicious. Let's give one another the benefit of the doubt that we have moved beyond that in Christian maturity. Often we are going to cause hurt to sin against one another without even knowing that we're doing it. Because we're still maturing in faith. And we find ourselves living with the very best intentions when all of a sudden we are convicted that in fact we are causing pain to someone else. Now, personally, this passage struck a chord in my heart because of the place the United Methodist Church is right now. If you don't know, there is a lot of conflict in our church body. And looking around, I have seen a lot of ugly ways of handling conflict on all sides of this struggle. However, I have also seen examples like Paul and Corinth that give me hope that we can, in fact, hold one another accountable with Christian grace. And maybe you're not somebody who has any idea what I'm talking about, and that is fine. Maybe you're just rooted in this congregation. That's great. That's great. But I'm willing to bet you still have conflict of your own, whether it's here in this church or at home or at work or even just within your own self. It's part of the human condition. And when these moments of conflict happen, Paul's encounter with the Corinthians shows us it is possible to get through the other side and still be in relationship. But to do so, we have to start with transparency in our relationships. Paul writes that we have behaved in the world with frankness. Now here in the South, frankness is not something that we view as a positive trait, is it? We like to be a little bit more subtle than that. We call it being polite. But no matter how we do it, if we're going to be in an honest relationship, we do have to live telling the truth with one another. And again, I don't mean the truth as in, you know, I accidentally backed into your car outside. We will assume that we all generally understand that idea that we teach toddlers about the truth, what is and is not historically accurate. But what Paul writes about when, when we're talking about telling the truth is what he calls godly sincerity. And it is made possible only by the grace of God. We must be sincere to God. Sincere to the person God has made us to be, and sincere to the purpose of the Holy Spirit. It would be no use if Paul tried to be someone else. Say Barnabas. Barnabas was lauded in the Bible as the great encourager. He just really lifted people up and everybody loved him. If he tried to be Barnabas, Paul probably would have been a lot more popular. People would have liked him more. And it probably would have felt good for a while. But he would never have accomplished the ministry that God set out for him. And he probably would have grown to resent the community he was in because he would have been pretending to be something that he's not. Without godly sincerity, without being true to who we know God to be, who we are, and the purpose God has put on our lives, we cannot live fully. 
When we live with godly sincerity, our cards are on the table for our community to see. It's a scary thing. A lot of us like to play life with them a little bit closer to the chest. Godly sincerity means being honest about who we know God to be, who we know ourselves to be in God, and the purpose that God has called us to. We are not comfortable with that level of vulnerability. And yet there is freedom in being ourselves. Jesus freed us from sin. It's right there in the Bible time and time again, so that we might live fully in him. So why would we not live fully ourselves with godly sincerity among one another? Because Paul and the Corinthians each lived with this kind of vulnerable transparency, they are able to hold one another accountable. The church in Corinth has begun to follow false teachers who promised to take them to Jesus, but were in fact taking them away. And Paul calls them out on it. He holds them accountable. And Corinth, in turn, they question Paul's motive and behavior. They make him re-examine things he's taken for granted, and they remind him of the responsibilities that he has because he is the more mature one in the faith. Sincerity, vulnerability, accountability. This is hard work, guys. This sort of work for most of us, it's nearly impossible. The idea of approaching someone else and saying, here's all of my vulnerable places and the way you have hurt me, and then staying open in order for them to tell us where their vulnerable places are, where we have hurt them? No, thank you. So how is it that Paul says we're able to do this? His answer is simple. It is God. He writes in verse 21, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us by putting his seal on us and giving us his spirit in our hearts as a first installment. It is God who sets us in our communities. It is God who anoints our communities and each individual for the work of ministry, which includes serving in the world, sharing the gospel, and yes, doing this hard work together of sincerity, vulnerability, and accountability. Paul talks here about this idea of being anointed in the Spirit. And generally when we talk about this in the Bible, the idea of anointing, it's in the big moment of someone's life. We might think about Christ who is anointed by the woman, prophets who are anointed for their role, or King David being anointed by Samuel. This spring, my two-and-a-half-year-old niece was reading with her mother the story of the little shepherd being chosen by God and anointed as king by Samuel out of her children's Bible. She asked her mother, why did they anoint him? What does that mean? I was coming up to visit later that week, so my sister-in-law decided that was a great question to put a pen in and let the pastor and the family handle. So when I got up there, my niece came up to me and asked the same question over breakfast. Why did they anoint David? I can't remember exactly, right word for word, how I answered to try to make it accessible for a two-year-old, but I do remember I was so excited. Um, because anointing has a depth of history in the church, right? For a long time, we anointed Christians after their baptism to seal them, right? Christ was anointed. It has this rich history. I do know that the way I chose to talk to her about it, 
I used a, a common parallel image that we use, um, which is that sheep are anointed by shepherds as well. So I talked to her about why shepherds do this for sheep. Shepherds pour oil on their sheep, and it serves a lot of purposes. It soothes their dry skin and desert air to make them comfortable, much like we might put lotion on our own bodies. It helps their wool to keep from matting and tangling in bramble, which preserves them for their purpose, right? To be sheared and make clothing. But oil also repels insects, both flies that would just be a nuisance and more vicious bugs that might burrow into the skin, lay eggs, and cause harm to the sheep. So like sheep, being anointed by the Holy Spirit serves to bring us comfort, to preserve and prepare us for the purpose God has for us, and to protect us from corruption. I think this is a really cool image. I do remember, however, though, my niece was not that impressed. She said, oh, okay, and went back to eating Cheerios. Took me down a notch. Um, I do have a feeling that the church in Corinth might have had a similar reaction to my niece. And that's why Paul talks about it much more simply in this scripture. The anointing of the Holy Spirit over our life is a first installment on the promises of God. The word Paul used that we translate here as first installment might be most literally translated as a down payment. Because you and I and we as a community are covered in the Holy Spirit, comforted, prepared, and protected by the Holy Spirit. It is evidence, a foreshadowing of all God's good promises that will come to fruition. It is a down payment on all that we hope for. On the promise of a time when the lion lays down with the lamb, when sin and death are no more, a time when conflict is erased, when swords are beaten into plowshares, when we do not cause each other harm as we try to live sincerely. It is a promise that that time is coming. Our evidence is that right now, in the midst of that conflict, in the midst of, of swords and lions and sin and death, we are still comforted. We are still prepared. We are still protected through the hard work of living in the midst of these conflicts. What we have here in this community, the love, the acceptance, the welcome that is here, it is just a first installment of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which we will one day receive. We are waiting, and I don't know about you, but I am excited if this is just a down payment. When I think about the fullness of the covering of the Holy Spirit that is to come, there is a story that comes to mind from my time in the hospital. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been anointed with oil. And I want to be clear that we also anoint with prayer, with the laying on of hands. And so even if you have never received oil, you are still anointed in the Holy Spirit, comforted, protected, and provided for by God. But if you have received oil, you might know that at least in this tradition, when we use oil, we tend to make the sign of the cross on the forehead, or put a few dabs in palms, or we might, might, if we're feeling really bold, pour just a tiny, tiny bit on someone's head. 
Last fall, while I was working in the hospital, I had a patient who asked me to anoint her because she was in a particularly rough patch in life that felt like spiritual warfare. She needed to be reminded of what was already true, of God's protection, that she was prepared for this fight, and she needed to be comforted in the midst of her distress. So I went, I retrieved oil, we prayed together, and then I made the sign of her cross on her forehead. All the while she was praying out loud the whole time, as some people do. And so in the midst of her prayer, after I made the sign of the cross, she said, cover me more, Jesus. So I took her hands and I dabbed oil on her hands and she said, cover me more, Jesus. So I poured a little bit on her head, at which point she pulled off her hospital gown and she said, cover me all over. which, working in a hospital, was not the first time I'd seen that. But at this point, I did politely hand her the oil and say, I'm gonna let you do that. I stayed and I prayed with her while she covered herself and she did mean all over, head to toe. She sealed herself with oil, representative of the work of the Holy Spirit in her life. And as uncomfortable as I was in that moment at her invitation to lay hands on her body, I can't help but wonder, have I ever desired God's coverage at that kind of level, where I tear off all pretext, all safety, and expose myself, figuratively, not literally, to my community, right? Have I ever taken that kind of risk? so that I might pursue sincerity, vulnerability, accountability with my Christian brethren? What would it be like to seek out the promises of God with that level of gusto? That sincerity is the natural starting point of our relationships with one another. Where showing all that we are isn't a surprise. Yes, it might seem hard at first, but I also know that that woman, sick in a hospital room at the worst moment in her life, was living with a kind of freedom only offered by Jesus Christ, to be her God-given self, and to not give a care about what anyone else had to think of her other than her Savior. Yes, community can sometimes be a painful road, but it is also a road that leads to the full promises of Jesus Christ, and we can be sure of that because we already have God's first installment on it right now. Our wanting for the kingdom, it does not always mean we are going to like all of our Christian brothers and sisters, or that our relationships are without struggle. But our desire to be anointed by the Spirit, to be comforted, prepared, and protected, keeps us focused on the most important thing, Jesus Christ. Paul writes that he boasts in the church in, of Corinth and that he hopes they will one day boast in him as well. This is not a casual statement, you guys, because Paul also wrote in Galatians that I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus. So if both those things are true, this must mean that being in community with one another, celebrating and building up the faith of others, no matter what we have to discuss along the way, is holy work representative of the cross. We are the body of Christ. 
As we boast in Christ, so too do we boast in one another when we see one another live out their God-given self. We have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, protected, chosen, set apart, marked for work, and so have our communities. And y'all, all of this is just a first installment, a guarantee, a down payment on the promises that the Holy Spirit has made throughout Scripture. Some of us are departing today, right? And we've spent various levels of time with you guys as a community. There is grieving. But there is also boasting. This community is evidence that the Holy Spirit is real. And it excites me beyond belief. Even though I am leaving to see the work that the Holy Spirit is doing. It excites me beyond belief to know that this is just the first installment. I see the work that God is doing here among and through you. And I take pride in saying that you are Christian siblings in the faith. So continue the good work. Pray constantly for one another and pray for those of us who are leaving as we will pray for you. That we all may continue to receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which allows us to live into the promises of God this very day. Amen.